Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are now going to be doing the fourth in the series of 18th century Prague. This episode is going to be called The Edict of Tolerance, which took place in 1782. So last week we dealt with a broad look at Berlin, Vienna and Prague in the first 50 years of the 1700s, a time of restrictions, expulsions and laws, which we termed the stick and the second half of the century was the carrot. Arms open wide to embrace the Jews. But actually nothing had changed because the motivation is exactly the same, even if the methods were almost 180 degrees away. So in Prague, shortly after succeeding his mother Maria Theresa to the throne, Joseph II issues a cluster of sweeping reforms. Among them, the Edicts of Toleration for the Jews, which start in 1782. A year earlier, Joseph had made his intentions known. These reforms would make the numerous members of the Jewish nation more useful to the state and the means to achieve a useful jury involved two types of transformation, really, a cultural one and an economic one. Culturally, their language, for instance, the uh, language of the Jews bred what the state considered corrupt practices. So moving forward, Hebrew and Yiddish could only be used for religious matters. And we are, of course, talking about a language that everyone spoke, wrote, and read. But from now on, all documents had to be in the local secular tongue. Business documents written in Yiddish would be illegal. Then there was education. Jews had to establish their own schools under state supervision, or send their children to Christian ones, and universities and other institutions of higher learning would now be open to Jews. And 200 what were called Jewish Normalschulen, which gives you an idea of how they viewed education until that moment. So 200 of them were established during the decade of Joseph's rule. Now, it's true that these schools, which were located often in the more provincial areas, provided thousands of Jewish boys and girls with modest skills in reading and writing and arithmetic. However, when Hertz Homburg was appointed as supervisor over the schools, his control of funds and manpower and supervision not just of the secular content, but also the religious educational content, which did not balk at coercion on his behalf, aroused opposition. 
but there was little that could be done by the Druze to stop the onslaught. And we now have a situation where suddenly the, the Habsburg monarchy, which was often viewed as lagging behind other empires in Western Europe in terms of modernization, in a short space of time has pushed into the forefront of modernization. And Habsburg Jewry is now culturally, quote unquote, well in advance of any other country in Europe, including, for instance, France or Prussia, which has Berlin as its capital and the Berlin Haskalah. Moses Mendelssohn is resident there at this time. So in the Habsburg Empire, they're educating thousands of children when Berlin could only keep one school going. And all these changes happen very quickly. In fact, from 1785 onwards, there were even more edicts and they were even more intrusive. The justice patent confined the authority of rabbinic courts and of communal autonomy, which had been in place for, you know, 1,700 years, basically. And it was now only allowed to rule in purely religious areas. Then there was the marriage patent in 1786, which affected Jewish laws such as divorce, because you now had to have a secular divorce. And once again, this is unheard of in Judaism until this moment in time, not just over the past 1700 years, but ever. There was never such a thing in all of the history of Judaism. We think about secular divorce, about a bill of divorce as being quite normal. But in the almost three and a half thousand years of halacha, secular divorce is less than 250 years old. Wow. And then there is a forced waiting period of 48 hours before the dead may be buried which the Neid Behuda will come out strongly against, but which is unfortunately backed by Moses Mendelssohn. And the battle lines were drawn, therefore, not only between Judaism and the government, but between reform and orthodoxy. And this school certification now becomes a sword over the heads because it becomes a requirement, a prerequisite almost, for any number of matters, for a job, for travel, Almost like the vaccine certificate of today. Yes, similar, but <laughs> uh, much more onerous. <laughs> and there was a decree to adopt personal and family names, German ones. So did we see in that time of history many Jewish names becoming more secularized? Well, they had to take on German names. They could no longer use their own existing names. Wow. And there was no improvement at all for the Jews in all of this? So... That would, I, I guess, be taking it too far. That would be unfair almost because there was greater acceptance by secular society. But as a result, you start sounding like them, looking like them. And because you can hold your own in conversation, it's attractive in many ways, but it's forced. And this is all just the cultural side. In other words, coerce the Jews to abandon their old ways but equally damaging were the emperor's regulations of Jewish economic activities. Yes, invite the Jews into various types of trade, 
but as long as we exclude them from others, generally the ones that they are currently successful in. Because you have to remember, this has got nothing to do with helping the Jews. This is all about making them useful to society at large. Their wishes are an irrelevance, and therefore excluding Jews from leasing various monopolies, such as the inns, was the object of a string of ordinances between 1784 and 1787. And had they been carried through in total, as Joseph II envisaged, it would have ruined up to one-third of Galician Jewry, who were engaged in leasing of one sort or another. How did they explain this? On the one hand, they're trying to make the Jews more normal, and on the other hand, they're restricting them. I mean, from the government's perspective, it seems a bit odd. What they are doing is allowing the Jews to enter society, but on non-Jewish terms. And therefore, there were certain things that would remain in place. We'll come to a couple of examples in a moment. But essentially, economic transformation was there to remove existing constraints, expand the range of livelihood. But it was in order to channel Jews away from their deceitful trades. And therefore, yes, there was limited relief given to them. For instance, they no longer had to pay the degrading body tax when they entered a city or display the discriminatory signs that we mentioned last time, such as the yellow bands or the beards. But the main purpose of the new laws, as the emperor himself stated clearly, was not to increase the number of Jews in the realm, but rather through enlightenment, render the Jews no longer harmful to society. And in time, they would either become good Christians or would improve at least their moral character and become useful citizens, which is why you see one clear example of the discrimination. He does not abolish the familiant laws. So the numbers of Jews in Bohemia and Moravia can still not increase generation to generation, and only the eldest in the family may marry. And there was no change to the restrictions on tolerated Jews in Vienna or the taxes that Jews had to pay. And you also get military conscription of Jews from 1788 onwards. And this was the first time that Jews had served as soldiers, probably since the era of the Romans. So this edict of toleration, is that what it was called? Yep. So it was there to ensure that the Jews would not continue their existence as like a separate entity in the country they would um, assimilate. That was pretty much the plan. Yes. In fact, not just that they would not continue their existence as a separate entity, but that they could not. They would be forbidden to regulate their own affairs. The traditional community was abolished and Jews would be incorporated under the authority of the local establishment. Now, in many ways, we are so used to this today that we can't really think about a time when it didn't exist, but this was completely novel. And it was the most influential piece of legislation visited on the Jews in at least a thousand years and becomes the adopted model in Germany and France and other places. It echoes 
what has become the classic statement at the time on behalf of Jewish equality when Count Clermont-Tonnerre's speech in December 1789 before the National Assembly in France where he says everything must be refused to the Jews as a nation and everything must be granted to them as individuals. Jewish autonomy, in other words, has to be abolished. I was reminded of this during my trip to Paris last week when I passed the place where this speech was given. Oh, so you were in Paris last week? Just for a few days, yes. You've finally grown your wings again. Uh, yes, uh, refreshing my French while I was there. And this business or pleasure? A bit of both. So who, in this whole period of time, who was the main rabbi who was the Das Torah at the time? So into this mix, we have to factor both the presence and the impact of the rabbi of Prague for most of that time, Rabbi Yecheskel Landau, who presided over the city for almost 40 years, from 1755 by the time he arrives until 1793 when he passes away. And it is always important when you're learning about the leaders of jury to know in what environment they were operating, because often it will exponentially expand our appreciation of them. For instance, if we understand the conditions under which Maimonides labored, wandering from country to country, losing so many members of his family, then his input is far more valued. And the same is true in Prague. Rabbi Landau has to deal with all of that we've just mentioned. Yet, he will elevate the presence of Torah and Judaism in Prague and in Bohemia generally to a level that takes it back almost to its heydays in the 16th century. He's an amazing individual, and that's besides for the halachic inputs, which is international and the range of topics that he covers therein. The only thing is it doesn't last much beyond his death. It couldn't because Jews were being dragged away from Judaism, I mean, in very different ways to the Crusades, but in numbers that were much higher. And unfortunately, as the years went by, it was not only the state and the government that had a hand in this, but the Maskilim, the enlightened ones as they are known, also did. They were convinced that this lifestyle would mean freedom from the restrictions and pain of exile. And it would, but the price for this type of freedom from exile was freedom from Judaism. And although you could live halfway between the two for one generation, the next generation would push the boundaries and very soon it was all gone. And an increasingly secular-leaning community would unfortunately continue its downward spiral almost out of control until World War II. So the 20th century would produce an international author, Jewish author, like Franz Kafka, but he was utterly ignorant about Judaism, which he bitterly complains about in a famous letter addressed to his father. Do we have any writings from Pichaskalando? Yes, quite a few. I mean, he has a commentary on the Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch. He has the Neu de Behuda, his responsa. He has commentaries on the Talmud. Mm. Yes, quite a bit. And also very famous in describing 
the downward spiral of Prague is the visit of Romer Shapira, who was the Rov and Rosh Hashiva of Lublin in Poland in the early 1930s. He visits the two cities of Preszburg and Prague and was moved to write an essay which appears in a French-Jewish newspaper, La Tribune Juive. He goes to Preszburg first and sees a thriving city in terms of Judaism. And he arrives in Prague at night. He gets off the train and he asks to see its Torah, its Yiddishkeit. And he's told to wait until 8 a.m. the next day, at which point he is given a tour of the cemetery. Mm-hmm. In fact, he writes that only 160 Jews are living a fully observant Jewish lifestyle in Prague out of 30,000 Jews at that time. And, you know, they see he's somewhat disappointed. So, as he records, they show him the old clock with the Hebrew dial. And he asks, where's the new Hebrew? Where's the new Judaism? So, Judaism lost pretty much all its Jewish presence, its orthodox Jewish presence, in about 50 50 years? Over a a 50-year period. You could say between 1780 and 1830, that orthodoxy was almost destroyed. It's an incredibly fast breakdown. Based on these edicts and of the willingness of Maskilim to adapt and to really aid and abet. Mm. So Rabbi Cheskel Lando, who's actually generally known by the name of Neudebi Huda, which is his volumes of legal responsa, you know, he could hold his own in Europe. He was probably one of the three leading halachic authorities in Europe for most of the second half of the 18th century, the other two being the Shagis Arieh and the Vilnagon. And like his two contemporaries, one to the west in France and the other to the east in Lithuania, he was noted not only for his halachic abilities and writings, but for his svarim on the Talmud. Now, if you were to ask somebody who has some awareness of the Noe de Behuda, they might mention one of two communal matters, his attitude to Kabbalah and his attitude to reform. But actually, if we understand the environment, what is behind it, it gives us an insight into what is happening in real time almost. So, for instance, his opposition to Kabbalah is actually based on his very real concern about the spread of Sabbateanism, much more so than any problem he may have had with early Hasidus. And that's a mistake that many people make based on his advice against saying the L'Shem Yehud, the prayer, before counting the Omer, and which, by the way, to this day is therefore observed because of him in the Altnoishul in Prague. But we find, if you look through his droshus, his speeches in Prague, which were only circulated in Prague, he was far more open about Kabbalah. He speaks of Gilgulim, of Ten Spheres, whereas in his responsa, he was far more guarded because he had less control over who the audience would be. 
and it's quite um, little known that he wrote on Kabbalah, in particular a commentary to the Arizal's central work, the Eitzheim. So this has to be seen in context, and similarly his criticisms of reform and their publications, which included Mendelssohn's translation of the Chumash, was out of concern of the government joining with these maskilim and turning their initiatives into law. His criticism is not of secular education per se, but of the primary importance being given to it. So he himself says about German, the language, that you can only say you know a language if you know its grammar. And he actually defended the new schools which the government opened, but his concerns about Jews assimilating into society run throughout his speeches. This is really a concern of a lot of rabbis' response throughout the centuries, that a lot of the context was little known, so it's harder to... Yes. One of the things you find from Responsa is an insight into history. It tells you what is going on, and you note that over the centuries they are, broadly speaking, addressing different issues because of changes in society mm. rather than because of changes in halacha. Now, the Nodibihuda doesn't criticize Christianity directly because of government censorship. You know, we've mentioned that in some of the previous podcasts about Prague still there. And therefore, he talks, for instance, only of the wicked Yishmaelim, the Arabs, the Muslims, as opposed to Catholics, even though he's clearly not referring to these Muslims in Christian Europe. And in the context of his writings, it's clear who he is referring to. I mean, for instance, he proclaims that a Jew in Europe who joins the Ishmaelites is no longer part of the community. He doesn't mean a Jew who becomes a Muslim, he means a Jew who becomes a Christian. But he is adept enough to avoid the censor and still get his message through. Mm. And he had to do this because in the Habsburg Empire, legislation forbade any reversion, meaning anyone who became Christian couldn't be brought back to Judaism, so he uses code to define his halachic position. It's surprising that his Sephora managed to get through the Noe de Bihuda, the classic work. Yes, but bearing in mind that on that basis of him being guarded about what he's saying, that allows it to pass through the eye of the censor. Hmm. Now, when he arrives in Prague, he's opposed by prominent supporters of Bionis and Eberschitz, such as Rebbe officials, but he overcomes all opposition by dint of his standing, his knowledge. In fact, uh, Rabbi Fischels became his deputy of Bezdin. I believe they became a Chotonim. And he helps rebuild the Jewish part of Prague physically. Remember, there had been those wars that we mentioned last time, eight years' war. There were a further seven years of war in the 1750s, and there was a fire in the Jewish quarter in 1754. So he helps rebuild from that perspective, but also spiritually. And his pupils will include Rebeleza Fleckelus, the Truvame Avo, uh, Rebetzal Regensburg, the Chaya Odom, who will go on to Vilna, as well as Maskilim. Some of his pupils will end up turning the other way. 
and he will be buried not in the main cemetery in the Jewish quarter, but in the newer cemetery, only part of which has been preserved because the communists in post-war Czechoslovakia deliberately destroyed a large, large section of it, but his grave is still there. How was he seen by the government? Was he looked at as someone who was stirring up trouble, or was he? did he manage so, to play the game? Yes, no, he, he did, actually. He was very successful at that, which is why he remained in place for so many years. Monarchs would hold meetings with him, and he held an official position as far as they were concerned. And as a result, one of the most unusual droshes he gave in shul was a eulogy, a hesped, but it was for the Empress Maria Theresa. He was known as a powerful and stirring speaker. And you can read many of these speeches in Drushe Hatzlach or in Avas Tzion, which contain not only insights into Medrash and Torah, but powerful social and religious criticism. And as such, the announcement that as the chief rabbi of Prague of Bohemia, and recognized by the government that he would deliver a eulogy for Empress Maria Theresa in the synagogue in 1780 was not unexpected. Were the officials there? Yes. So the gathering includes the entire leadership of the Jewish community and the Bezdin. But in addition, there are Christian notables, both from the government and the army. And therefore, in addition to the normal material that you would expect to find in a eulogy, there is a section which talks about the Empress. Now, historians all agree, and we mentioned this last time, that Maria Theresa was one of the most anti-Jewish monarchs of her day. Robert Kahn, who is a noted historian of the Habsburg Empire, writes that regarding the Jews, and I quote, the Empress had inherited all existing prejudices and acquired some additional ones. Yet, the eulogy that Rabbi Landa that Lady Behuda gave is filled with praise for her. Now, obviously, he's operating under obvious constraints. Firstly, she was a popular ruler. Secondly, as the official representative of the Jewish community, speaking in public with Christians in the audience, he couldn't very well have launched into a diatribe. And thirdly, he was, in fact, sincere in some of his praise, which does not mean that he was out of contact with reality or unaware of the empress's anti-Jewish policies. He doesn't falsify the record. He never claims that, you know, she liked the Jews. But he was of the opinion, which we find clearly stated in the Mishnah in Pirkei Ovis, that any ruler, no matter what their policy towards the Jews is preferable to no ruler to, to chaos. So he goes on to praise her courage as a leader in war and her capacity to inspire the dedication of her soldiers, which was actually true. Of course, he couldn't entirely ignore the question of the Empress's attitude towards the Jews, especially since his listeners remembered how he treated the issues of taxation imposed by the Habsburgs on the Jews, in which he had mentioned in earlier speeches. And they were extremely high, these taxes, perhaps unparalleled anywhere else in the diaspora. So he says, God placed in her heart the idea of increasing 
the burden of our taxes as chastisement for our sins. <laughs> Clever. Yes. Now, he'd been loyal to the ruler ever since his arrival in Prague, so that during the Prussian siege of Prague in 1757, he offered a public prayer of thanksgiving in the Altmoschul when the siege was broken. And when Maria Theresa fell ill in 1767, he composed a public prayer for her recovery. So he navigated difficult waters on many fronts simultaneously. Haskalah, the misuse of Kabbalah, government intrusion, and he was very successful in this regard. Now, on a related note, um, I received an email from Prague. It was pointed out to me that if I was mentioning Jews of note in Prague who had large libraries and were unusual for the times in which they lived, that I should add Rabbi Yosef Shlomo del Megiddo to the list. What do you mean when you say you got an email from Prague? Well, maybe we have a listener there. Um, I see from a listener in Prague, and this is from the country Prague. Right, no, 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 not an official one from the local government there. <laughs> right. I was going to say we have listeners in high places. Right, right. So I guess it is true that we should mention Rabbi Shlomo del Megiddo. He's not quite 18th century, but a brief bio is definitely of interest. He was born in Crete around the year 1591 to a known Jewish family. His grandfather or great-grandfather was called Elio del Megiddo and has writings which we still have today. One is called Bechinas Das. Yosef Schlemmer was clearly very gifted because at the age of 15 he goes to study in Padua in Italy, which was one of the few places in Europe that allowed Jews into university. And he is taught mathematics, medicine, philosophy, and he studies under Galileo. From there, he goes back to Crete, or Candia as it was known, for a few years, but he is clearly bitten by the travel bug and wants to explore. So he goes to Egypt, where he teaches, and is there for a few years. He goes from there to Constantinople in, in Turkey, from there to Poland, then to Lithuania. And he was a mugid, a preacher in Vilna, as well as a physician to the local non-Jewish ruler, Prince Radzivil. He was clearly a man of unusual talents and aspirations. And at this stage, he was also initiated into Kabbalah, which he was initially opposed to, perhaps due to the writings of his ancestor. And at the same time, he authors a defense of Orthodox Judaism from attacks by Karaites in Lithuania. Karaites believe only essentially in the Book of Moses and the Book of Joshua, but definitely not in any part of the oral law. And he writes this sefer called Elim. And the reason behind the title was that immediately after the Jews have left Egypt, they camp at a place called Elim, Elimo, where the Torah tells us that there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, Shivim Tamorim. 
and his safer is appropriately divided into answering 12 questions about Judaism and responding to 70 doubts on the matter. It's quite poetic. Yes. And the wanderlust was not over for him yet. He's gone halfway round the world. He now goes to Germany, to Hamburg. Sounds like he's an ancestor of yours. <laughs> and in Hamburg, he becomes the rov of a small Svardi community there. He then goes to Amsterdam, where he meets Menasha ben Yisrael, who had already heard of him and was very taken by this sage who combined Torah with great knowledge of the sciences. And Menasha ben Yisrael will help him publish this Sefer in 1629. He then produces another work, but this one is about astronomy, mechanics, optics, number theory. It's in Hebrew, and it's called Talumas Chochmo, which is printed around the same time. And he writes in there that mathematics and geometry reveal the greatness of Hashem. He then goes to Frankfurt. And finally, in the 1640s, he ends up in his last location, Prague, where he will remain for more than a decade until his death, heir of Succus, in 1655. And he was fluent in Latin, Greek, Spanish, Italian, French, German, Polish, modern Greek, as well as, obviously, Hebrew. Anything other than English. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't make it that far. That's the only reason. And have you been to his grave? No, it is also not on the trodden path. But uh, Is it known where he's buried? It was known. I'm not sure if that is still the case, but it definitely was. It used to appear on maps. And on his Matseva, the epitaph includes the words Dion in Hamburg, rabbi, teacher, scholar, philosopher, and mathematician. So he was a real Renaissance man who lived and saw a variety of countries and Kihilis, Svardi, Ashkenazi, and he is almost unknown in today's world. The interesting thing is that he manages to achieve precisely that which all the Muskilim in Berlin, Vienna, and Prague failed to achieve, a level of harmony between secular and religious study. And I think the reason is obvious which you can see both from his writings and from their writings. You don't need anyone to interpret it or put a spin on it. He works from a position where God and Torah is primary, whereas they have fallen in love with the secular sciences and are determined to acquire it at any price. So I guess it is fitting to mention him in this podcast. And what's quite ironic is that these Muskelim would consider themselves broad-minded but actually, he is the one who lives in two worlds, and they don't and can't. So, you know, who's the one who is broader? Yeah. Wow. So that brings our Prague series to a wrap. A slightly longer episode than usual, but a very fascinating one, especially the final character that you that you chose to put in. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. We are starting a new series next week, if you want to remind our listeners what it's about. Yes, a three-part series on controversial prayers. The first part is the Tsar. Week two is Amsterdam. 
And week three is the Angels. And these are across the centuries? or Absolutely. Um, yes. Okay, we're looking forward. Thank you very much again. And as usual, any feedback and comments, which we've been getting quite a bit recently, very overwhelmingly positive. And with suggestions, which Rabbi Hirsch will consider, to please continue to be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. And thank you very much. Thank you.